Hey, welcome to Tape to Tape, powered by the new Ram 1500 Sport Build exclusively for Canadians. I'm Ryan Dixon. I'm a writer at sportsnet.ca. Joining me this week, as always, daddy to two little girls, now two under two for a couple months anyway. Rory Boylan, tell us about your past week. You know, when you have your first kid and it's so challenging, right? And I remember a conversation we had where I think you said something along the lines of, you know, you're not getting any sleep. You're wondering how you function, but then you see other people doing it and you figure, well, there's got to be a way that do it. Other people do it. So we can probably figure out a way through this. The second kid, when the second kid comes along, Ryan, that's a level up. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's a level up, especially when the other kid is still you know, kind of a baby. Um, it's uh, it's a challenge. If you go to three, then you're in a bit of more zone defense than man on yep. man. At least yep, one of us really can take are. one. Um, but I, I will say that, you know, our second child, uh, Abigail Rose, is uh, more mellow than her big sister was at this stage. You know, still gets up in the middle of the night and all that stuff as babies do. But um it's just, it, it was amazing. The hospital staff was absolutely incredible. You know, you, you go in there and you don't even realize, um, you, you don't really notice that there's a pandemic going on. You know, nurses are wearing masks and you see, I saw like a tent or two outside the hospital. But once I got in, um, you know, you don't notice that that, that is going on. Um, everything went smoothly. So huge thanks to all the nurses, the doctors and everything there. Um, as we got through that and, and on to the, the new world where it's, mm-hmm. it's two girls and, and you're going to have two kids yeah. in a few months September, as well. Yeah. So we can yeah, talk about I'm, those adventures. <laughs> we can. I'll tell you my greatest fear a couple months out is, you know, when you have one, you just live for the moments like right now when she's asleep mm-hmm. and the thought that that time that you've come to bank on could just be eviscerated by the second child kicking out. I'm convinced they're going to work in perfect tandem where like when one goes down, the other one's going to be like, well, time for me to start flipping stuff over. But uh, mm-hmm. yep. we will cross that bridge when we get there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, ours goes down for an afternoon nap. Our older one goes down for an afternoon nap. And, and for right now, the second one is still so fresh and young that really they sleep so much of the day sure. anyway, right? So I'm not into that stage yet where she's a little bit more awake and active at that point. I agree with you. I think there's going to be a little playing off and you're, <laughs> it's going to be harder to find that moment where, okay, everybody's down. I got I got an hour to myself or whatever it is. <laughs> well, we're going to welcome you back to the pod with a couple of things. We're going to examine some potential trade candidates in the offseason in this pod. You wrote a piece that is up at sportsnet.ca identifying one candidate per team. So I want to explore a few of those names with you. And I've been doing a weekly what if in block two, we're going to take a closer look at a couple alternate universes I created for us, but let's start with the trades. Okay, there's a few names out there that, you know, have largely been out there all season long. Rasmus Ristolainen, Matt Dumba, uh, Jesse Pugliarvi, even Johnny Gaudreau is one that's kind yep. of picked up steam. You know, we've talked a, a bunch about, I would say, all of those guys, certainly Gaudreau. I, I want to throw a different group at you and just kind of get your opinion on who intrigues you the most out of some some less proven guys now this is a grab bag for sure one of the guys i'm going to mention hasn't even played an nhl game yet but okay. um <laughs> given there's going to be different price for these guys i just mm-hmm. i wonder who titillates you the most here Oli you levy is the guy you mentioned for vancouver he is someone who was drafted in 2016 and has yet 
to crack the NHL. Pavel Zaka, Devil Center, also mm-hmm. a high draft pick uh, in 2015, I believe. Jack Roslovic in Winnipeg. Anthony Duclair, the breakout year in Ottawa. Anthony Mantha in Detroit. Shane Gossespierre, who's been on the trade market, certainly the rumor mill for a long time. Shane Gossespierre in mm-hmm. Philadelphia. And Josh Anderson in Columbus. Those guys are candidates for different reasons. They bring different things to the table and they have different resumes. But they all, you know, maybe kind of fit the description of someone you'd be trading for, hoping either they're going to continue glimpses they've shown or that the best is yet to come. They're just starting to scratch the surface. Again, understanding there would be different price tags attached to those guys. Does one of those guys jump out to you as the one you'd be making a call on? Yeah, and not only different price tags, but like different levels of realisticness of how available these guys actually are. Like Olio Olevi is a guy who maybe could be available from Vancouver. It's not that they would be going out and looking to trade this guy or anything, but if you lose Chris Tanev to free agency and you need a body, well, you'd probably rather give this guy a shot first before you trade him. But if the right offer comes along and you're trying to get into the playoffs and you know level up as a team then he's the kind of asset that you have to to maybe bring in. Um, but the guys who are maybe a little bit more realistic to go, I'm intrigued by, you know, there's two names. The, the one that probably tops that list is Josh Anderson in Columbus. Um, he's going to be an arbitration eligible RFA in the offseason. And it's, that's going to be a really tricky and interesting negotiation because... Um, he had a miserable season this year. I think he only scored the one goal or maybe it was two goals. He was injury, had injury problems, didn't play a whole lot of games either. But he's also just coming off a season uh, a year ago where he scored a pile of goals and he's a huge, huge, huge body, still young, 25 years old. Um, so there's a lot of upside there. And it's just kind of like, what are you buying? Um, are you really going to pay up for a guy who struggled through the season that he just had with the injuries and everything as well on top of that you know are you trying to relatively buy low for a guy who could come in and easily um, be a top six player somewhere you know kind of a, a tough to knock off the puck guy who could get back up to 25 goals maybe in the right situation on the right line he becomes a 30 goal player Um, But he's just kind of been up and down. So it's a little bit unknown, really, what he is as an NHL player. The upside is obviously huge. He could be a massive difference maker for somebody that needs a second-line scoring winger. What are you giving up to acquire somebody like that for Columbus? You know, he was a name that was mentioned around the trade deadline as somebody that could possibly go. But it's always those types of players, those types of names, it's always more likely that they get traded in the offseason, at the draft, those kinds of things. So when we finally get to an offseason, I expect that name's going to pop up again. And because the negotiation is going to be difficult, you know, there's got to be a contender out there that would want to take a shot on him. And, and the other interesting name, and probably a little less realistic to go than Anderson, but I, I wonder about his availability is Jack Rosovich in Winnipeg. Um, I mean, he had an episode about a year ago where he fired his agent, changed agents because... Uh, well, because, but shortly after a, you know, rumor was circulating that Rosovich had asked for asked for a trade out of Winnipeg. His new agent clarified that, saying he never asked for a trade. He was just, you know, a little upset with the role he was playing, and that's fair because he 
has the upside of a top six player, it's just going to remain difficult for him to crack that spot in Winnipeg's lineup. Like they are loaded up front. They need defensemen. And when I was trying to pick out a guy to make as the trade candidate for Winnipeg, you know, other names pop up like Brian Little, uh, Matthew Perot, and guys like Matthew Perot, I think I would love to have on my team as a third line player, but he makes too much money. And so does Brian Little. But if you can come in and get a guy like Rosovich on an entry level contract who won't be expensive to re sign when he comes off of that, to maybe give a shot as a top six guy, or maybe you start him as a third liner and move him up. Um, maybe that's the kind of asset Winnipeg can use to get a defenseman that they're still going to need because they're not going to need forwards for a while yet. So, you know, it just comes back to though Kevin Cheveldayoff, the GM for the Jets, really isn't the type to make a lot of trades. He's kind of been known as the guy who is quiet at trade deadlines for the most part, doesn't make player for player moves. Um, but this might be a situation where, you know, Winnipeg had a disappointing year it was disappointing because the blue line was such a big problem for them but forward remains a a clear strength and if this player is frustrated by not being able to move up the lineup a frustration that probably isn't going to be able to get solved anytime soon then maybe it's time to think about flipping him for an area of actual need for the winnipeg jets players can go on the market for different reasons and if you look at tampa bay and toronto to atlantic division teams they We'll probably have to put some guys on the market to create a little cap space. We know the Leafs are obviously up against it after signing all their young studs and John Tavares as a UFA. Andre Vasilevsky is about to have a $6 million per year spike in his cap hip up to 9.5 in Tampa. You cited Kalorn as one of the guys from there's there's yeah. a, a middle class there among the yes. forwards. You've got uh, Yanni Gord, Palat, Tyler Johnson. Uh, Alex Kalorn, you cited Kalorn for Tampa and Alex Kerfoot in Toronto uh, as guys who may be the players who go to make a little room. Yeah, and it's interesting because both of those teams are very, very similar, right? Like you're going to need to clear some space here at some point. Um, for for Tampa Bay, the reason why I picked Kilorn is because right now Tampa Bay has about $76 million in payroll committed to next season's roster. And we don't know what that cap's going to look like. I have to assume right now it's going to at least stay flat. Um, And that's without new contracts for Anthony Sorelli and Mikhail Sergachev. So you're looking at going over that that cap pretty quick if it stays flat. Um, And then, like you said, there's that middle class of, of... players who are making good enough money. They're good They're good players who would be um, welcomed to a lot of other teams. They're not making a ton of money, but they're making enough that shedding that from Tampa Bay's cap would, would clear the space that they need. And you named all those players, Palat, Gord, Johnson. All of those three, though, have no move clauses. So they would need to sign off on something. And that probably seems unlikely given where Tampa Bay is in the contender status of teams. But Killorn did have a full movement clause, but according to Cat Friendly, as of July 1st, and I'm assuming that date is going to change if we return for a, a summer completion to this season, as of July 1st, 2020, Killorn's contract moves from a full no-move clause to one that allows him to submit a 16-team no-trade list. So Tampa Bay would still have roughly half of the league to be able to deal with. And that just seem that just seems to make him the most likely candidate to move. Otherwise, you're talking about you know, Kucherov and Stamkos and Hedman, those guys obviously aren't going to be moved anywhere. It has to be that middle class of players. And because some of the other guys are tied up in, in clauses, 
Kaloran just seems like the guy that kind of would have to go here. T- Toronto is similar in that they're going to be up against a cap, but they don't have these no-move clauses that Tampa Bay does. So I put Kerfoot because, you know, that Kadri trade just didn't work. Kerfoot, his production did not meet the standards that he was getting in Colorado. A little bit disappointing. The plus for him, and the reason why you might keep him, is that he's a center. The reality is that there's a number of players that could be uh, on the go here for Toronto. Kerfoot is one of them. Andreas Janssen is another one. To me... Those are the two I would kind of explore. I would be open to it. I don't think Kasperi Kapanen is a guy that they should be trading. He started to show that he could play that sandpaper kind of game too with that offensive upside. I don't know if he's going to be much more than a 20-goal guy, third-line guy maybe, but you you could use players like that on this team as well. Uh, and the other guy who is constantly mentioned I would never entertain is, is William Nylander. He would clear a ton of space for sure and bring you back a lot, but... I just think he's too impactful. So it comes back to those three, Kapanen, Kerfoot, Janssen, which one, or maybe even two, but probably one of those guys which you feel most comfortable moving. For me, it's Kerfoot, and then it's Janssen. I would rather not move Kapanen unless a good enough offer came along, uh, but it goes in that order for me, which is why I put Kerfoot down. At some point, I want to do a segment where we talk about uh, underreported stories throughout the year, things we just weren't talking enough about. Tristan Jari definitely got some headlines. I mean, he was really one of the the breakout stories of the NHL, uh, playing just incredible goal for the Penguins, especially you know November, December before Christmas. He did tail off a bit toward um, the end of the year before we hit the hiatus. Uh, Matt Murray, you know, great resume in Pittsburgh. He's got two cups on there, signed a three-year deal after the second cup. Both those guys are RFAs this summer. I mean, I, I think there's probably still a world given this was Jari's real first foray into the NHL where, you know, maybe you could get him back on a pretty, um, reasonable short-ish term deal and bring them both back. But who knows, there might be something that has to give in that crease. Yeah, and and there's a third factor there too, is that you've got Casey DeSmith yeah. uh, in the AHL on an NHL contract, right? Like he he earned a three-year deal because in 2018-19, he played 36 games and he had a 916 save percentage and was great. You know, his, his NHL track record while short has been successful. Uh, so you really have three goalies and I think one of them has to move. Um, you know, you're, you're either way, whatever happens here, you're probably going to keep two of them so that you have some kind of a tandem going in, into next year. And then you're, you're, you know, you're looking at the possibility of losing the second one anyway when Seattle expansion hits. Um, you wonder if, you know, if they take a goalie, if there's another player that becomes available from the Penguins. But th- there's a very real possibility that a year from now, after Seattle's picked its team, Pittsburgh's left with one goalie if they move a guy right now. So mm-hmm. that's the argument for not making a trade is that you just go into next season, you have DeSmith back in the AHL, you run with Murray and Jerry and try and win another cup, and then you lose one of them to Seattle probably in free agency and then you are in expansion, and then you come back the year after that and you still have a tandem you're able to move forward with. Uh, Jim Rutherford was uh, speaking to The Athletic recently, and he kind of touched on this and said, look, like we're probably going to be faced with a tough decision here. They're, they're also a capped-out team that's going to have to deal with some contracts to other places in their roster. Do you, do you have the luxury to be able to pay 
two NHL caliber goalies to to be a tandem going forward? Or do you just financially have to move one of these guys out uh, to to be able to pay all the other players that that you're going to need? So uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see how those negotiations go. You mentioned that Jari's uh, production, his save percentage fell off in the last little bit of the season there after the calendar flipped to 2020, but he still had a 905 save percentage in those two plus months. And that was better than Matt Murray was putting up. So, you know, it's difficult because one is the better performer recently. The other guys won a couple of cups. Uh, it, I don't know which way you're going to really lean here. I don't think there's an obvious choice, um, but there's going to be an interesting backup goalie market anyway this summer with uh, a number of players coming up for free agency. So it might prove difficult to trade somebody, uh, one of these three goalies, because there's going to be options for teams out there. Um, it just is the most likely place for the Penguins to trade to shave salary because they're going to need everybody else on that roster. That's a good segue to San Jose. You mentioned Martin Jones, speaking of goalies who might be hard to trade, um, but you yeah, know, he hasn't been getting it done. San Jose's goalies in general haven't been getting it done. We assume they'd have to eat some of his salary. I think he's at 575 or so, but honestly, this is just another segue to another conversation I want to have extensively somewhere down the road. And that is what if the sharks have to rebuild? Like what if they come back next year, whenever that is, and it's just clear that things have passed them by, they have Couture, Kane, uh, Vlasic, Burns and Carlson on mega deals what would it look like if all of a sudden they were looking for a way out from under those contracts and of course all of those guys are at least 30. Yeah I mean if you realize you have to rebuild my question would be how do you do that um I mean I wonder like especially right now when the cap is uncertain not just for next season but probably the season after maybe even the season after that like how would you manage trading a $7 million Evander Kane, or if you wanted to, like, how are you going to manage trading an $11.5 million Eric Carlson, who, by the way, has a no-move clause and wouldn't need to sign off on anything anyway? And that's the other thing. Like, Vlasic has a no-move clause. Burns yeah. has a modified no-trade. All these guys have some, Kane and Couture, all of them have some kind of level of trade protection. So they're going to have control of whatever, which is going to diminish your market. I mean, and that kind of forces you, if you're going to commit to a rebuild, that forces you to trade somebody that doesn't have trade protection. And that's that leaves you with Timo Meyer, who is on the rise, making $6 million. That would seem to me like a guy 23 years old that you'd want to keep to be there yeah. for the other end of this. So that would be my kind of takeaway is you step back and you say, well, okay, you want to rebuild. How are you going to do it? How are you going to find takers for these guys in the limited markets that you have with the salary cap uncertainty? I think you're just kind of kind of have to be forced to push through and and try and see this thing through the other end. And I think a lot of that would be solved by just upgrading in net. And it's going to be hard to move Jones. I don't know how realistic that is. But again, if you can if you can enter this market and get a, you know, a Robin Laner I wonder what Braden Holtby goes for, even if even if it's somebody like Anton Kudobin, who probably won't cost as much as either of those guys, somebody to just come in and settle everything. I think that alone would go a long way to stabilizing the, the San Jose Sharks. I mean, Meyer himself didn't have a fantastic year. I, I think he's going to bounce back. I look at this team and I think if they get a goalie, I just think they're a, 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 
a more likely team to recover to some degree than destined to just stay at the bottom of the standings for the next five years. Any names we didn't get to? Um, you know, the one that I was a little uncomfortable putting on there, but I think is an interesting discussion to have is is Vegas. Um, there's not really a lot of really obvious trade candidates, but I put down Marc-Andre Fleury, not because I think it's likely to happen or anything, but look at what's going on in net there. Like They traded for Robin Lehner at the trade deadline, um, I guess to give Flurry some rest before the playoffs, because I would assume that Flurry would be your starter come game one of the playoffs. But you got to wonder, like Flurry is 35 years old now. He, he's been on a downward trend for two years now or so, um, making seven million dollars, and you have nobody behind him um, that is gonna that, that looks on track to be taking a number one job anytime soon. Does it make sense to sign Laner and maybe explore a flurry trade? You know, it just seems unlikely because he's the first face of the franchise and you you re-sign him and all this stuff. It would be hard to let go. But realistically, you've committed so much money to so long to the core of this roster up front. Stone, Pacioretty, Stasny, Schmidt, like all these guys, Theodore. Um, obviously Vegas has designs on challenging for a cup for a number of years to come here still. And you're going to need a goalie to do that. I'm not sold that Marc-Andre Fleury is going to be able to stay on that level for a, a few more years after this. Laner, I think, is more likely to be able to do that. So you just got to sit back and wonder, like, what really is the plan here? What's realistic? And would they ever explore trading flurry because you would probably need to clear some cap space to be able to keep Robin Laner, who himself is looking for a, you know, a, a pretty hefty contract, at least one with term uh, when he hits free agency this summer or whenever the offseason is. Rest assured, uh, when it lands, there will be some, some good players on the move as always. And we will be uh, anticipating and speculating also per usual. All right, coming up, we're going to enter the world of what is Hey, welcome back to Tape to Tape. All right, Rory, it is what-if time. I've been writing these on a weekly basis now for, I think, um, four, four or five weeks today. We've what, all lost track of time. We, we, it really <laughs> has. It's a flat circle. It's a blur. Um, true I, story, Ryan. True story, Ryan. Just a quick story here. Um, it was about noon today. I realized it was Wednesday, but I, for the first four hours or so of that my day, I thought it was Tuesday. <laughs> I find my, my routine is... On Tuesday, I'm always like, it's only Tuesday. And on Thursday, I'm like, how the hell is it already Thursday? <laughs> this is the oh, world man. we occupy now. <laughs> well, in the world we lived in, Wayne Gretzky signed with the New York Rangers in the summer of 1996. I went back and did a little what if he had signed with the Maple Leafs, uh, who were known to be interested, at least their GM Cliff Fletcher, Vancouver Canucks also uh, I think went down the road quite a ways with Wayne Gretzky. A few other I've tossed out there. Uh, one that would be near and dear and painful to your heart. What if Alex Ovechkin had been born one day earlier and was mm. eligible for the 2003 draft? Under that scenario, he almost certainly would have become 
a Florida Panther, one that was a little crushing for me to write. What if the Montreal Canadiens had not traded Ryan McDonough in a package for Scott Gomez in 2009? Uh, What if some all-time teams and players basically didn't have the misfortune to come along when they bumped into some big-time dynasties like the 70s Sabres and the late 80s, early 90s, the Ray Bork came nearly era Bruins, the mid 80s Flyers, the Mike Keenan coach Flyers that kind of get glossed over there. So there's a few that I threw in out there. They're all up at, uh, you can find them on the interweb uh, at sportsnet.ca. Rory flipping through a couple. Were there any that popped out to you? Yeah, well, I was kind of getting ready for this Ovechkin one, and then I and then I saw the Gretzky file coming today. I'm like, well, okay, we gotta we gotta talk about this Gretzky to the Leafs. What if? Um, because it, it's interesting where the Leafs were at that point when Gretzky was a free agent. They weren't very good, right? Like if Gretzky came here in 1996, 97, I don't think he was changing that team into a playoff team. I mean, you would have started the season, I believe, with Sundin, Gilmore, and Gretzky as your three centers, which, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, imagine okay. that, right? Um, but they were so far out of the playoffs, they traded Gilmore and a couple other players that year. They were so far out of the playoffs, I don't think Gretzky... It's it's hard to say because you think back and you're like, well, he was at the end of his career and blah, blah, blah. And then you look at his stats, like he still put up over 90 points. Like, Rory, I was, I, I'll tell you, I was... If not shocked, seriously surprised when I dove in to realize because you always remember like, oh, yeah, last year he scored nine goals. Like, guess it was time to go out. His yeah. his first two years with the Rangers, age 36 and early 37 season, he played every game. He went 97 points, 90 points. And the only guys who scored more points in those two years were Yager and Timu Solani. I, like that was I shocking. Yeah, I was yeah. shocked, man. I, I didn't think he was still. It's so long ago. Like I didn't think he was still at that le- like top three yeah. in scoring. That's incredible. he was fifth in Hart Trophy voting in for the 1998 MVP. Yeah. So so you know maybe a 97 point Wayne Gretzky is able to help the Leafs overcome. Uh, like they were almost. I think they were not close. The yeah, they yeah, were they not were close well in the playoffs. They were well, and he didn't help that Rangers team into the playoffs either. So I don't think that first year they got in, and then the second Sorry, the year, first year right, yeah, right. second year not. Um, I, you know, the, the Leafs are just so far out. I don't know if one player, even at that performance, helps them in. And even if they get in, what is it like the last seed or whatever? I don't. I don't think. Um, maybe his ninety-point season or whatever he does in year two of that deal in nineteen ninety-seven, ninety-eight is able to get that team into the playoffs because they weren't too too far out. But then again. You're looking at this and you're saying, well, okay, they get into the playoffs, probably towards the bottom there. Are they going to beat Dallas, Colorado, or Detroit? Because Toronto was still in the Western Conference at that time. Um, you know, those teams are just starting to emerge as, as real powerhouses too, right? Yeah. So I don't think it's that. And then you look at the last year there, and even if he stayed another year, then you run into other problems. Like 1999... Wayne Gretzky's last season, if he was on the Leafs, that's the year the Leafs got to the conference final against the Buffalo Sabres. Now you're talking about running into Dominic Hasek. And Wayne Gretzky couldn't get Team Canada by Dominic Hasek in the 1998 Olympics, right? Well, he so, didn't get the chance uh, when the, it really mattered, Rory. Right, that's true. That's true. But there's, you know, no shootouts in the Stanley Cup playoffs and all that stuff. Um, you wonder. The, I, the only thing I wonder about that, though, is Dominic Hasek was injured and missed games one and two of that series. Toronto lost game one, won game two. Dwayne Rolson was in net uh, for the Buffalo Sabres. You do have to wonder if having Gretzky on that team 
lifts you to a game one win? And do you walk into Buffalo in game three with a two nothing series advantage? Is that enough to kind of turn the scales? You're still you're still fighting an uphill battle against Dominic Hasek, and he was at his peak. So that's a difficult one. And then in your article, you also kind of made the point that, okay, you know, the Rangers weren't a playoff team at the end of Gretzky's career, but the Leafs were. Would would that playoff performance um, have made him want to stick around for another season? Would Gretzky have played 1999-2000 on the Leafs if it looked like they were a team on the up? But again, you come back to the problem, well, okay, in 2000, the Leafs played the New Jersey Devils. They got eliminated by the New Jersey Devils in the Stanley Cup playoffs in six games. And the Devils just had Toronto's number. Like In that sixth game, Toronto managed six shots on net. Um, you know, it, that was I, that that performance. I remember the camera shot showing the stop, the shots on goal in that game. It sticks with me forever. Sticks with me to this day because it was so one sidedly dominant. So you're just kind of looking at this and you're saying, how much would Gretzky really have helped the Leafs? The best chances probably were 99 and 2000. And then you're looking at, okay, well, you're going up against in 1999 the best goalie who's ever played the game, and in 2000 you're going up against one of, if not the best defensive team that's ever played the game. And does a Gretzky at the end of his career really help you triumph over either one of those situations? Really hard to get your head around because we're even, our minds are even blown by looking back at the stats that Gretzky did manage to put up on the New York Rangers. It's hard for me to buy into Gretzky would have been the difference to lift those teams over uh, Hashik and the Devils, but man, it makes for a fantastic what if scenario for sure. C- could you imagine how many '99 jerseys we'd be seeing to oh, this day, too? All over the place, and you know, it, it's just it's mind boggling to look back at it now and think that uh, a problem, an issue that got in the way for having Gretzky land in Toronto was that ownership <laughs> wanted to cut costs. You know, yeah. um, it's just absolutely unbelievable. I think I think it's more about. To me, this what if was more about, man, the Leafs should have had Gretzky. They had a chance to get him. They had a chance to bring home a, a hometown kid at the end of his career, the best player to ever play the game, and they didn't. And I think that's more about what that what if is about than would Gretzky have gotten to this team to the Stanley Cup playoffs. I think that's a bit of a stretch, but it kind of just reminds you of, man, he should have been a Maple Leaf, shouldn't he? It... Um... It was a really weird time in that, you know, uh, a little gap between the resurrection under Gilmore when Cliff Fletcher landed and it was Cliff Fletcher who was the GM who wanted to bring him in 97 but couldn't get the ownership to sign off on it. And then they have those two weird years under Mike Murphy where they just are, (laughs) you know, nowhere near the playoffs. And unfortunately, it was just bad timing. That's when Gretzky came up. Then then when he's hanging them up, boom, the Leafs are back. They're cutting big checks to everyone. Cujo is uh you know the backbone of the team that uh goes to the conference final a couple times while he's there so it just things just didn't quite line up but you're right it, it looking back on it as i wrote it almost it feels shocking that it didn't happen actually yeah it, it really is it really is and then one of the other what ifs that got me thinking here you had one on what if some of these you know you picked out three teams um remind me who they were what if they didn't run into dynasties yeah so we had the uh the 70 sabers who uh you know the the french connection uh Gilles, um gilbert perot mm-hmm. uh rick martin um that team that made it to the 75 final lost to philadelphia which was winning back to back 
in six games um, and then ended up losing to the New York Islanders, who, of course, were on the verge of becoming a dynasty three times in the next handful of years. The Islanders beat Buffalo in 1980 before they went on to win the Stanley Cup. Um, Gilbert Perot finished, I think he was sixth in points per playoff game all time among guys uh, with more than 75 points, but um, never got that cup. And then the team that tormented me as a youth, the Ray Bork came Neely Bruins, who finally ended Boston's curse against Montreal. But, you know, they ran into the, the Gretzky Oilers in 88. 90 was really the missed one for them, where the first game, yep. uh, there's no Wayne Gretzky there. Still a great Edmonton team with, you know, uh, Kevin Lowe and Mark Messier and Bill Ranford that year. Um, the first game goes into triple overtime, legendary game. Power goes out in the Boston Garden, of course. And, the you know, Peter Klima, who played 37 seconds in the you know whole game or whatever, ends up scoring the winner. And the Bruins just kind of never get it back together. Uh, and then you forget that same team. Then they ran up against Mary Lemieux. 91, they've got Pittsburgh down 2-0 in the East Final. Game 3, Ulf Samuelson's infamous hit on Cam Neely. Neely's never the same again. He did finish the series, but you know couldn't be the same player. Um, uh, Pittsburgh goes comes back, wins four straight, wins that game, uh, wins that series, wins the Cup in 91, wins the Cup in 92. Again, beating Boston in the East Final. That's kind of it uh, for for those Bruins. And then uh, the mid-80s Flyers, uh, you know, I was, like many people, have been keeping an eye on the vintage games. We, we ran on Sportsnet the 87 Cup Final, which is actually the first Cup Final I recall watching. And, uh, you know, uh, a very entertaining back and forth. Philly climbed out of a 3-1 series deficit, forced a Game 7 in Edmonton. Close game, and Glenn Anderson bagged the insurance goal with under five minutes left but you know they lost same as the Bruins first year they ran into Edmonton 85 probably overmatched but that was Mike Keenan's first year as as coach of the Flyers and you know they had a, a bunch of uh you know it was the next generation after the Bobby Clark Bill Barber era Flyers um and yeah by uh by 87 you know they had the likes of Brian Propp and Mark Howe was a great defenseman Tim Kerr was hurt in that series big time loss for the Flyers uh, just a monster on the power play, but you know they they and Ron Hextel was the playoff MVP in '87, despite being on the the losing side. So you know how would things be different for those teams, those some of those players, uh, had they been come up against you know mere mortal teams? You know. Yep, and and you know, you reminded me in that too about how Boston threw a Stanley Cup parade for Ray Bork. Yeah, after he won Colorado, which I you know. I am convinced because make no mistake somewhere sometime probably powered by Bill Simmons. There's going to be a documentary <laughs> about the 20 year run the Bruins are on and I've always or the, the city of Boston is on with the Patriots and Red Sox and Bruins and Celtics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just to, to set the scene for how bleak it was when things turned around with the, the Patriots victory over the much heavily favored Rams in the Super Bowl in 2002. Consider they were like, hey, let's throw Ray Bork a parade. <laughs> he he won yep. the Stanley Cup. That was with the avalanche, but let, let's throw him a parade anyways. <laughs> we need to celebrate something because there was not a lot of good things happening there. Yeah. Um, so reading that one, um, it got me thinking about another, you know, kind of a what if. And, and this team didn't run into a dynasty per se because... You could probably say the last true dynasty was the Edmonton Oilers um, in the 80s and at the end of 
1990 there. Sure. Um, but it got me thinking about the St. Louis Blues from about 1996 to 2002. Um, yeah. You know, they won a President's Trophy in there, which ironically enough was the one time they got knocked out in the first round. That was by the San Jose Sharks. Um, but this is a team that they finished first or second in their division six years in a row during that stretch. Um, and then in in that seven-year period, they were knocked out by one of either Dallas, Detroit, or Colorado six times, and then the upset to, to San Jose. Those teams, Dallas, Detroit, Colorado, won six cups. They were the only Western Conference representatives in the Stanley Cup final over that time. And it just, you know, St. Louis was led by Chris Pronger and Al McKinnis. They had... You know, they had Joel Quenville as their coach. You know, what happens if Joel Quenville wins two Stanley Cups with the St. Louis Blues or even one Stanley Cup with the St. Louis Blues? Like, how the re- how does the rest of his career go? Yep. Does, he, does he go to Colorado and all of this stuff? Um, you know, Pavel, Pavel Dimitra, Pierre Turgeon, like, they had a lot of really good players. And I remember, like, especially that blue line was just absolutely unbelievable. They seemed like a team that was just, they couldn't get, they were like the San Jose Sharks of the last decade, decade or so um, at the end of the 20th century there. And they just couldn't get over that hump. And it always makes me wonder, like, what if they were? What if they were able to get past those three powerhouse Western Conference teams just once and won a Stanley Cup? It would have been a, a little less special for winning the Cup uh, they most recently did last year. But, you know, it could have changed the course for a lot of different players and certainly their organization um, if they were able to push through it and win. So that that was one that I kind of took away. Like This reminds me of the 1996 to 2002 St. Louis Blues. They were just always really, really good and could never, could never get over that hump and win. And probably a team that fits that description that bridges the two we just talked about, St. Louis and San Jose the last decade. The Ottawa Senators, you have to put in that for mix sure. as well, right? The Alfredson, Jacques Martin, you know, went to the 03 East final and and couldn't quite punch through against New Jersey uh, and then did go to the 2007 final, played the Ducks and and lost in, in five games. And, you know, maybe maybe that was never meant to be that serious, but it feels like one of those ones that it certainly felt like a jump ball when it started. And they had, you know, the big line of uh, Alfredson, Heatley and Spezza, but um, just never could quite punch through. You have Hosa, you have Havlat in their peaks. Um, I mean, Chara, you know. You, yeah. You, I remember the first year out of that lockout with the lost season, 0405, and all the new rules, and it was way more open and more power plays were being given than ever before. And watching that Ottawa Senators team just, just toy with teams, especially on the man advantage, and thinking, how is anybody going to stop this team? They have everything that you could possibly want. And, you know, it just... More often than not, they just ran into a Toronto Maple Leafs team that wasn't particularly skilled, you know, like they, they were yeah. just grinders and they had Ottawa's number. They couldn't get over that that uh, that hump a lot of the time. And then when they finally did and they got to the cup final, they met Anaheim. Well, I mean, Anaheim was a buzzsaw on their own. And it's just that that Ottawa Senators team, too, does seem like one that, boy, oh, boy, you look at those lineups and what they could do at their peaks. They, they seem like a team that really should have won a cup. And we mentioned this guy once already on this podcast, a pretty good like micro what if uh, that 0506 team you mentioned coming out of the uh, law season, Dominic Hasek, I want to say was at the Olympics, oh, uh, hurt his yes, groin it was. that year. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, he was a 925 goalie at age 41 for a really good team. You know, let's just say 
he doesn't tweak that groin. Is that enough um, to, to carry them through? They got upset by the really good Buffalo team that year, and, and that was that. Yep. I mean, if you have the world's best goalie, healthy, and he's like the way he was playing that year, he was yeah. still at his peak. I mean, absolutely, you have someone like that in your net. That That's a massive... How many how many lesser goalies have we seen yes. just catch a hot streak and take a team to the cup final? Like It's Dominic Hasek. I think they would have won the cup that year can play the what if game forever and believe me friends we will again all right thanks so much for listening as always great to have rory back thanks to uh all the hospital staff who helped him and his wife pam and who continue to be on the front lines as we battle through this pandemic everyone stay safe out there thanks to our producer michael Mayers. as always make sure you check back next week for more glass rattling hockey action on tape to tape 